It's 1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Interesting day here at WTMJ. Um, They are still up in our upstairs conference room answering phones as part of our WTMJ Cares initiative to raise the beam. So if you've been hearing about it all morning, you still have time to make a donation. Actually, even after today, there's time to make the donation. This raise the beam effort is just phase one of of a multi-part effort they have to uh, create the 9-11 memorial in Kewaskum. I was looking at the plans this morning. They're absolutely tremendous. And of course, as the face of it, the the Habermans just do a tremendous job. And um, again, this is a situation of taking the, the, the terrible tragedy, losing their their, their daughter in the the nine eleven uh, terrorist attack, and then trying to to take that energy and to channel it into something positive. I have the greatest respect for them, and um, Fran and I, my wife, were, were thrilled to make a donation to help the cause, and I would encourage everybody to do that. All right, the final Marquette University Law School poll before the election comes out in about fifteen minutes or so. We will break that down when we have the numbers. I, I will say this. I don't know what the numbers are going to look like. You, you need to remember that the Marquette University Law School poll is, again, no, not necessarily any more accurate than any other poll. Their final poll a week before the election in 2016 had Hillary Clinton winning Wisconsin by six points. It had Russ Feingold ahead of Ron Johnson. And, of course, we know how those races turned out. But it it is an interesting snapshot, and it will give me an opportunity to kind of talk about where I see these different races going. That's coming up in a few minutes. But I want to start, and by the way, as we do for the first couple segments of every program, we are live streaming the show Facebook.com slash 620WTMJ, so you can participate in that fashion. Even wore a collared shirt for today. Yeah, kind of a collared shirt. I've, I've been I've been wearing kind of like these sweater things lately, but went with the collared shirt today. So you can go to WT, you can go to facebook.com um, slash six twenty WTMJ and you can check that out. All right, here is the story. The, the one of the controversies last week was, of course, Megan Kelly on the her the final hour of the Today Show, which was was her hour of a show, and she in anticipation of Halloween, she is having a conversation with a number of panelists and. She talks about how she doesn't understand why going to Halloween parties or dressing up at Halloween in blackface is necessarily bad. She says, I mean, her argument is, hey, we used to do this when we were kids, and um, it, it all depends on what your intent is and what the character is, et cetera, et cetera. There is a huge backlash from that, and she ends up being fired. Now, I, I candidly, as I said last week, if if her show was more successful – and if the show had done better in the ratings, I, I wonder seriously whether or not this would have been enough to fire her. But but I mean, it's not like she went to a party in blackface. She just said, hey, I, I don't necessarily understand why this is so wrong. All right. Well, I want to tell you a story about somebody who did go to a party in blackface. It's a woman. She she works at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, not St. Luke's in Milwaukee, St. Luke's in Kansas City. Her and her husband, she's a nurse at the at the hospital. Her and her husband apparently decide that they are they're going to go to a Halloween party last weekend and they dress up as Beyonce and Jay-Z, right? The the, the entertainers. The husband um, I'm looking at a picture now. He puts on a ski cap, sunglasses. He is in blackface, and he's got a T-shirt, and he's got a big old gold chain hanging around his neck. 
she dresses up as Beyonce. She's wearing a wig, long black curly hair. She's got a black top on. She's got black leotards. And then she's got this kind of like short gold lame dress. All right. She also has black face on. She has darkened her face and she has darkened her hands to make her appear as if she is African-American when she is not. All right. So they go to the party dressed as the rapper Jay-Z and Beyonce. They take a photograph. A photograph is taken of them at this particular party or on their way to the party or whatever. They're in costume, so they're dressed up like this for Halloween. She posts it on her personal Facebook page. Now, this is not the hospital's website. It is her personal Facebook page. But I believe on her Facebook, it does identify. You can figure out that she's she's a nurse at, at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, not Milwaukee, Kansas City. I mean, it identifies what she does. No sooner does she post this, and this post then goes viral. And there's a number of people who start complaining to St. Luke's about, hey, you have this woman. Look. She went to this Halloween party dressed up as Beyonce. She's in blackface. She is racist. You have to get rid of her. And um, right after this happens, the hospital acts. Here's what they say. On Monday afternoon, St. Luke's Health System became aware of a St. Luke's East Hospital employee who posted photos on a personal so on personal social media accounts of her and another individual dressed in blackface for what appears to be a Halloween event. The information was shared with appropriate health system personnel and an investigation was initiated immediately. While it is against St. Luke's policy to comment on specific personnel matters, we can confirm that this individual is no longer a St. Luke's employee. St. Luke's is deeply committed to our culture of diversity and inclusion. It is fundamental to who we are as an organization and we vigorously protect it on behalf of all our patients and employees and expect those who represent us to do the same. So in other words, she was canned because she went to this Halloween party dressed as Beyonce in blackface and posted the photos on social media. If she hadn't have posted the photos and there had only been reports about it, I I would assume St. Luke's would have acted the same, but they saw the photos and they ended up firing her. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should she have been fired for this? I think most of us would agree or understand that, I don't know, years and years ago, you used to have performers that dressed up in blackface and did, you know, exaggerated caricatures of of what they perceived to be stereotypical African-American behavior. All right. We don't do that anymore. We, we don't do that anymore. But but does it justify her being fired for doing this? She didn't attend a work event. This wasn't how she dressed if they had like a hey, dressing costume sort of day. This was personal social media and presumably a private party that she attended. Was it right to fire her? 414-799-1620. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us also, I remind you, Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. Should have been, she have been fired for going to the party dressed in blackface and then publicizing it by posting photos on social media sites. We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1216 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1218 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Patty in Brookfield. Patty, good afternoon. Hey there. How you doing? I am well. Okay, so the lady 
goes to the party dressed as Beyonce. She's got blackface on. She posts the photo. People see it. Her employer fires her. Should she have been fired? No, absolutely not. Um, if it's if it's written in your employee handbook that if you go to any type of a social event and you are dressed inappropriately as wearing a black face, um, then okay, fine. But there's nothing in the employee handbook that states that she should, you know, not mm-hmm. be doing that. And I, I, it's it's just like the Megyn Kelly thing, you know, to let have them just fire her like that. Mm-hmm. We're saying something, you know, white people put black faces on. Black people put white faces on. I mean, they didn't. They didn't keep reiterating but, that statement. It was always the the white person putting on a black face. Not the black person putting on a white face. Would you think she was dumb to do this? Well, no. I mean, this is her own private Facebook yeah. page. No, I mean, my goodness sakes, it, it's getting to the point where you you can't do anything anymore mm-hmm. because somebody's going to turn around and say it's wrong. Yeah. Well, thanks for call. I, I, I mean, I, I I will tell you this. I am surprised. I am surprised they fired her, and I, I I don't want anything I'm about to say to be a defense of 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 dressing in blackface. I think that that is something that it, it candidly, because of the history, and, and maybe maybe that was something that wouldn't have raised an eyebrow brow twenty or thirty or forty years ago. But but times change and things evolve. And I think it it is sort of generally accepted that that this this has racist overtones and. Whatever her intent was, and I don't know if this woman was a racist or not, I don't know about that, but I, but I do know when people look at that, that is the way they perceive it. And so this is one of those things. I'm, I'm the guy that argues that the N-word, for example, I don't think white people should use it. I don't think black people should use it. I don't think that word should be part of society. I, I think dressing up as blackface is kind of one of these cultural no-nos now for, for white people. Now, having said that, though, Having said that, it's not a crime. It might be an air exercise of bad judgment. And did I do I think that she should have number one done it? Probably not. Pick a lot. Of, there's a lot of costumes that are out there. Number two, do I think she should have posted a picture of herself on Facebook? Well, if you do that, you got to realize there's going to be some ramifications. But I have to tell you something. She's not Megan Kelly. I mean, she's not on a, the Today Show. She she's a nurse at a hospital. And I guess the question to me becomes: Is that going to influence her ability to do her job? And I I wonder seriously whether or not she's going to get a lawyer and might want to sue to if she wants to protest this firing 414-799-1620 carrie in delafield carrie you're on wtmj good afternoon hi, hi um i just feel you know without knowing this couple and realizing if they are racist or not just claim that they're racist i think is um, absolutely horrible, and it's not like they were being indignant or disrespectful. And I had well, some people would thought, argue that that blackface, in and of itself, is, is disrespectful. I guess that's the that it, it doesn't matter what your intent is. The argument is you just don't do that. You don't dress. That's not a costume you dress up in. You don't dress to, like Hitler in 2018. But you to don't, actually uh, call them racist yeah. when you actually don't know their values, right? And then the other thing is, I had a question. In the movie, if you recall the movie, um, the comedy White Girls, where two black men... It was white chi- Was it White Chicks? Was that it? Or yeah, white white girls? Something like that, yeah. yeah. 
would that be reverse racism? Well, see, that's an. In- I mean, thanks, thanks for calling. I mean, that that is this interesting thing, and I'm getting a number of texts saying, you know, are there double standards here? And well, and the answer is to an extent, yes, because uh, of the the history of racism in this country. There, there are there are, for example, dual standards that I, I think exist, and and there might be things that are acceptable if you are a member of a minority group to do that you can't do if you know, you are a member of uh, again the majority. I, I just. At the same time, and I, I want to be real clear here, I to fire her, she didn't show up. If she had showed up at a hospital party dressed in blackface, I, I get it. But this wasn't what that is. I wonder how far this goes because one of the terms that gets thrown around a lot is that this cultural appropriation. I wonder if they had showed up dressed exactly the same. You know, her in the long wig with the, the, the dark curl, the, the black hair and the dark curls, the same exact costumes – um, but but hadn't put on white face, but hadn't put on black face um, and hadn't darkened their skin. Would this have created as much of a controversy? Would that have been cultural appropriation? I mean, you have colleges that are telling people, all right, at these Halloween parties, don't dress up as Native Americans or don't dress up as samurai or don't dress up as geishas because there will be trouble. We continue the conversation in just a minute. Again, we're live streaming Facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ 1224. Jeff Wagner. 1226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Let's talk to, let's see, Darren in South Milwaukee. Darren, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, how are you doing? Good. What do you think? Should I, this woman have I, been fired? Well, I don't know if she should have been fired, but I, I, I'll say this first. I, uh, whenever I listen to you guys' show and it has anything to do with racism, especially, and don't take this personal, if it has anything to do with white people being racist, it's never, ever racism oh i don't really think she was racist yeah she that's why she posted it because she knew she was trying to get a rise so she paid posted the, the blackface if she should have been fired but i'll tell you this these people that say they don't want to be politically correct and they want to do whatever they want to it amazes me how the first time they get punched in the face they're the first one on the police on the phone with the police but they want to be they don't want to be politically correct me myself yeah she should have been punched in the face for doing it Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have punched her in, in the face for, for doing this. I don't know if that contributes to the dialogue. I, I guess the, the, the question becomes, you know, Halloween is one of these times where you kind of I don't know, you're supposed to let your freak flag fly. And, you know, you, you go out and you do kind of fun sort of stuff. Now, I understand that there are there are now limitations on that type of thing in this particular case, even if I guess and see to me, here's the issue. Even if we accept the premise that this was in really bad taste or it, it was it was a racist costume. All right. That let, let's assume that because then the question to me becomes, is it fair or right to make that jump saying, all right, on her own time, she's gone to a party or had a party or whatever or dressed in this costume. That means that she should lose her job. It's not something she did on on the job, it's not like she's Megan Kelly and she's a, a commentator on all these events. She, she's somebody who works at a hospital a, as a nurse. Now, she is linked to the hospital because I think on her Facebook page, what it says is it says where she works. So there is a link there. I think I think it's pretty tenuous. I got to tell you, I think the hospital is on thin ice in firing her for for this. Unless there's some real, real clear language in, again, the employee handbook or employment contract or whatever that, that limits her ability to do this. Do I think it was good judgment? No. Do I think she should have thought out the ramifications of this? Yes. 
Do I think it is a fireable offense? Well, I think that's a lot more problematic. But this does raise the issue. And, and what you need to be aware of it, the, the dialogue has now changed in 2018 and stuff that you might have been able to do 20 years ago without consequence now has a consequence. On top of that, this is what happens with social media. If she had just showed up at the party dressed like this, maybe somebody would have seen her. Maybe somebody would have said something. But the fact that she posts it for God in the world to see then brings the hospital into this and creates the issue. Do I think she should have been fired? My gut reaction says no. Do I think she should have thought a lot longer and harder about choosing Halloween costumes? The answer is yes. 1234, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, a heartbreaking loss to the Rams. Two major trades. A lot has changed since we last checked in with the Packers head coach, Mike McCarthy. He's live at 621 tomorrow in Wisconsin Morning News with Gene Miller. Here's an interesting uh, text. Jeff, are you going to discuss the impending sale of WTMJ to Good Karma, which actually happens tomorrow, and what side effects it will have on programming and just the overall state of WTMJ? The answer is yes, I I will be. Matter of fact, we'll be... um, Offering a couple comments, today is the last day that we are owned by Scripps Broadcast Company, and a couple really close friends of mine are, this is their last day, they're, they're leaving. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on the program, and then tomorrow, forward-looking, um, we, we have new ownership here at WTMJ. Matter of fact, I hope, uh, I, I hope tentatively we've made arrangements to be joined by the, the CEO of, of Good Karma Broadcasting um, on the program tomorrow. So we're we're trying to put that all together to talk about exactly those things. But yeah, that's it, that's what's going on at the station and we'll, uh, we will definitely talk about that. Alright. Marquette University Law School is generally considered to be the, the gold standard when it comes to, to polling. And I, I give them that but just like the, the problem is being the gold standard of polling, I I I don't know. It, it's in some respects, it's kind of like being the the king of the bad tasting fish. You know, it, it's just the reality. I was trying to find all sorts of analogies. That was probably a bad one, but I didn't want to get in trouble. I, all these different things were popping in my mind. Would have been things that would have gotten me in trouble. Okay, the king of the bad tasting fish because polling is not good nowadays. I, I don't know if it's because people lie to pollsters or cell phones or they don't want to spend the money to do it right. Polling over the last several elections has not been worth the paper that the results are printed on. And, you know, Marquette University Law School went through the, the same thing. As I said last year, their last poll in 2016 before the presidential election had Hillary Clinton winning by six points. They got it wrong. It had um, Russ Feingold ahead of Ron Johnson. Matter of fact, if you believe the Marquette University Law School poll, Russ Feingold would have been elected in 2010 and in 2016. They, they just they got it wrong. So I take all this stuff with a grain of salt. But but nevertheless, I think you know, given the fact that they struggle with methodology, I mean, I think Marquette does it as well as any pollster do. Do any pollsters do? I just think. Polling in general isn't very good nowadays, but people are people are interested in the horse race results. So here are the numbers. The last Marquette University Law School poll, which was taken October 3rd to October 7th in the governor's race, had Scott Walker at 47 percent, Tony Evers at 46 percent among likely voters. The poll that has just come out today Again, a statistical tie. 
4747, um, of showing a very, very close race. Um, if you broaden it out to registered voters, Walker's numbers go up somewhat. Um, among registered voters, it's Walker 47, Evers 44. I tend to look at, I mean, I, I look at likely voters. But it's tough to determine who likely voters are. The bottom line is a, a very, very, it, it's a pick 'em race. I mean, their numbers today, 47, 47, that, that's within the margin of error. That's no different than 47, 46. It shows an extremely tight race, which is what all my sources who have access to private polling data, which tends to be a lot more reliable, are, are telling me. It's what my general sense is. Scott Walker is always in tight races. My guess is that this will be as tight of a race as he has had simply because Walker has has a ceiling. There, there's a lot of people in the state that love Scott Walker. There's a lot of people that, that hate Scott Walker, and it doesn't matter. Tony Evers is the anti-Scott Walker. I don't think there's anybody out there who says, I want to run through a wall and vote for Tony Evers. The only question is, are there going to be enough people that are going to be motivated to come out and vote against Scott Walker to give you that 50% plus one vote that you end up needing to to win? So this is extremely close. It is going to depend on turnout. I believe, I'll make my prediction now, I think at the end of the day, Walker wins, but he only wins if Republican Party voters come home. And look, I will acknowledge this is a year where Republicans are running into a headwind. I don't necessarily think I agree that there's going to be this huge blue wave that's out there, particularly not in Wisconsin. But at the same time, I understand people on the left hate Donald Trump. They are motivated to go out and send Donald Trump a message voting against anybody that has an R after their name. But what I have seen over the course of the last couple of weeks is I think a lot of Republican voters are, are coming home. They're unhappy with what they saw go on in Washington with regard to the Kavanaugh hearings. Actually, an interesting story about what NBC did, and it's an ugly sight involving Kavanaugh hearings. I'll share that with you in a little bit. But I, I think Republican voters are starting to come home. It is all about turnout. There's no question about it. And I know that's a cliche. I know we say that all the time. But in the governor's race, I think it, it is really about turnout. It's And I will say this. I, I think that when it comes to modern-day maxing maximizing turnout efforts, I don't know that there's anybody in the country that does it better than Scott Walker does and the, the Scott Walker campaign. But, I mean, the, the turnout machine's got to be – They've got to get every Republican vote that there is out to vote. They've got to get all their supporters out to vote. So if you are a Walker supporter and you appreciate all the good stuff that's happened in the state over the last eight years and you are taking this race for granted, you should not. I think it's a toss up. I think at the end of the day, Walker ends up winning. But right now, the poll numbers 47 to 47, the it shows that it's essentially a statistically dead heat, that's statistical dead heat with um Three percent saying they're going to vote for the libertarian candidate, Phil Anderson. Now, Gru, who's producing the show for me today, seriously, why why would you vote for the libertarian candidate? And, and I don't I don't I'm mean, that's that was a rhetorical question. Libertarians don't have to call in. I mean, he, he's polling at two or three percent. All it is is a potential spoiler candidate. That is a wasted vote. I mean, it, it just it is a wasted vote. Why you would do that, and you have the right to vote forever you want, and you have the right to not vote, but why you would, would vote, in this case, for the libertarian candidate in a race where every vote counts. 
I mean, I, I get it if you think that, okay, the, the race is going to be 55-45, somebody's going to win in a walk, so you want to make a statement and send a message, so you, you vote for the, the offbeat candidate. But in this particular case, every vote counts, and I think it's a decision whether you want to vote for or essentially against Scott Walker. So that's the Walker race. The poll has it as, at a statistical dead heat and um, an actual an actual dead heat, and I think I think that's a fair accounting for this. All right. So what's going on in the U.S. Senate race and the race for attorney general? We'll talk about that in just a minute. 1242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Who are the most special of Green Bay's specialists on special teams? Try saying that three times quickly. Vote for your favorite on the latest Green Bay 100 all-time team ballot. Get your ballot by texting the number 100 to 414-799-1620. Okay, the Marquette University Law School poll shows a statistic, an actual an actual dead heat among likely voters in the governor's race. That's essentially where it has been for the last month. Uh, they project that as, as turnout as turnout gets higher, Walker does a little better, but it, it's it's an extremely close race to the extent that you believe polling. All right. Next race, the attorney general's race, incumbent Brad Schimmel and um, his his challenger, uh, Josh Call, race that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, although there's some really nasty ads that are being run, particularly some nasty ads being run by Call. I saw one of them this morning. Um, again, the numbers very, very similar to the numbers in the uh, governor's race. Brad Schimmel among likely voters, 47 percent. Uh, call 45%. That is within the statute, uh, the statute of limitations. That's within the margin of error. It, it, it's a pick em sort of race. And my guess is that the attorney general's race probably goes the same way as the governor's race. By that I mean, I don't, I don't see that there's going to necessarily be a lot of ticket splitting that's going on there. My guess is if people come out and they vote for Scott Walker, they're going to vote for Brad Schimmel. One of the things that you, you see and Republicans need to be concerned about and I guess Democrats to an extent too, is is ballot fatigue. Ballot fatigue means as people, you start at the top of the ballot with whatever the top line election is, and people vote there. If it's a presidential year, everybody that shows up or almost everybody votes for president. Then maybe it's the governor's race. And then as you start to work your way down, people aren't paying attention to the races or they, they just don't vote. That's what's called ballot fatigue. And um, again, in the attorney general's race, my sense would be that everybody that votes for Walker is going to vote for Schimmel. Everybody that votes for Evers is probably going to vote for Call, although I could see a little bit of ticket splitting because, um, again, Brad Schimmel is the incumbent. But my guess is that race probably is going to be determined in large measure by how the governor's race goes. And, again, within the it's within the margin of error. Statistically, uh, Brad Schimmel up by two points in October, early October, it was essentially the same. Schimmel 47, call 43. Now it's Schimmel 47, call 45. That, again, is within the um, margin of error. All right. The other big race that they are focusing on, of course, is the race for U.S. Senate, Leah Vukmir and incumbent Democrat Senator Tammy Baldwin. Those numbers have not moved much either. In October, let's see, last October, the U.S. Senate race, early October, the Marquette University Law School poll had uh, Tammy Baldwin at 53%, Leah Vukmir at 43%, a 10-point margin. The new poll finds 
Baldwin at 54%, so up one point. Vukmir at 43%, so statistically, essentially unchanged. And that's that's pretty much the takeaway you get from all these different polling numbers unchanged with regard to, from a statistical purpose, most of these elections. Um, my sense is, and I have been saying this since February, I, I've always thought that it was going to be an uphill battle for Leah Vukmir because, candidly, I mean, the, the, the Toma, the, Tammy Baldwin has been a do-nothing senator. But by being a do-nothing senator, she she hasn't she hasn't been out front on controversial issues. She is the classic definition of a, of a back bencher, and I, I think to that extent, with the exception of the Toma VA scandal, which doesn't appear to be from an electoral point moving the needle that well. Don't send me emails saying it should or whatever. I'm just saying from an electoral standpoint, you know her non-action, her malfeasance, her misfeasance with regard to what was going on at Toma, I think is a legitimate issue, but statistically does not appear to be moving the needle that much. So um, the numbers have been pretty consistent with Baldwin with around a double-digit lead. I think it, it's everybody knew that Leah Vukmir running in this race was was facing, again, it's an uphill it's an uphill climb. You've got the, the Trump factor, and nobody knows for sure how that's going to play out. You've got the, the general problems that parties have when you're running in a midterm election. And typically, the party that controls the presidency loses seats um, in in one of those midterm elections. And this this year, I mean, if you look at the projections, it doesn't appear to be any sort of different. Um, you know, I think Leah Vukmir has run a spirited campaign. I think Tammy Baldwin, and I said this when we had Senator Vukmir on the other day, I, I think Tammy Baldwin has sort of grabbed the, the health care issue with some ads that I think are extremely unfair. Leah Vukmir wants to get rid of, you know, people's cancer drugs, and Leah Vukmir, you know, wants to eliminate coverage for people who have pre-existing conditions. So if you've got cancer or diabetes and you lose your insurance, you're going to be out to lunch. But those are, in general, completely and totally false, but it doesn't mean that they don't resonate. So you've got a week to go, but the poll numbers, according to Marquette, show that uh, Leah Vukmir has a significant uphill climb, and I think that that's probably true. Is is it ten points versus five points or three points? I I don't know, but I would say that Vukmir is clearly the underdog with you know a week to go. But I, I hike it. I, I you know I again I, I hike back. I can back to harken back to all the different things that we you know, we talked about in 2016. This poll had Hillary Clinton up by six points over Donald Trump a week before the election, and we all know how that turned out. So bottom line and the takeaway is is this poll pretty much unchanged from the poll a month ago essentially. You've got the governor's race which is a toss up, the attorney general's race which is a statistical dead heat and Baldwin with a lead on Leah Vukmir. And I candidly I think all those numbers my general sense is those numbers are probably true, which is again why turnout is so important. And if you support a particular candidate, there's just no excuse to not get out and vote. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1254, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Coming up in about 10 minutes, what's in a name? It's actually kind of a story related to the way we started off the show. A woman who was fired from her job for going to a Halloween party in blackface. This is, I think, a more interesting issue and, and, and maybe... 
even a more difficult issue. Like I say, we'll talk about that in about 10 minutes or so. Uh, just a couple other thoughts. I, I guess this time around, Marquette University did not poll on the congressional races. I, I, I wanted to just take a minute and kind of talk about them. I I do not see, and, and again, this is the thing about being a pundit. You go out, you say what you think, and then Wednesday morning, if it turns out we're completely wrong, you can call up or text or email me and tell me that I was completely wrong. And believe me, after doing this for... 23 years in this market. I, I'm right many, 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 many more times that I'm wrong. But those times that I'm wrong, and there have been a couple times I'm wrong, I hear from people. I, I, Melissa, I know you find that a surprise, that you know that if I make a prediction, it turns out to be incorrect, that somebody would call up and, and rub it's my just, face in that. It's just shocking. It it's is shocking. But, okay, but that's okay. <laughs> I've got broad shoulders. It comes with the territory. I, and I do not see the blue wave that may or may not hit the rest of the country. I don't see it hitting Wisconsin. I think, I think Brian Style is going to beat Randy Bryce. They, they've thrown all this money into that race, but at the end of the day, I think he's going to win. Jim Sensenbrenner is going to be reelected easily. Glenn Grothman is in a, a race with Herb Cole's nephew, Dan Cole. And I think some people thought that race was initially going to be closer. I, I think. I think Grothman is going to win that comfortably. And then, of course, Mike Gallagher is going to be comfortably reelected in the Green Bay area. Sean Duffy is going to be comfortably reelected in his area. And I, I guess I look at that, and, and if I'm right on those congressional races, I think it also bodes well for Scott Walker because it means Republican voters are going to are, are going to be coming home. Now, there is some degree of ticket splitting that's going to be going on if the poll numbers are right and, and Tammy Baldwin ends up winning and, and perhaps winning big if that turns out to be the case. But I, I think I think the five Republican congressmen are in good shape. Gwen Moore is not going to lose the city of Milwaukee. Pocan's not going to lose Dane County. Um, and then you've got uh, you know Ron Kind, who's been around forever in La Crosse. I, I think... Wednesday morning or Tuesday night when the results are in, it's going to be pretty much status quo as far as the congressional seats. That is, of course, assuming that all the candidates are able to do a good job in getting out the vote. If if for some reason, you know, Glenn Grothman voters decide not to turn out, well, all right, it's it's that might change that analysis. If for some reason um, the Paul Ryan supporters and 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 Style is just a, a great candidate, just would be a great congressman. If for some reason you know Republican turnout efforts founder on the shores, well, okay, that that might be a different dynamic. I don't see that coming. I think again, my guess is in Wisconsin, pretty much status quo, and I would not be surprised if. Actually, all the incumbents, all the incumbent congressmen and women, they end up winning. Wouldn't be surprised at all if Governor Walker is reelected, if Attorney General Schimmel is reelected, and if uh, Tammy Baldwin keeps her seat as well. I would not be surprised if you see no change at all um, coming on you know, Tuesday night or Wednesday morning in Wisconsin, despite the fact that you've had millions and millions of dollars there. So there, I guess that is my prediction. And so I am on record there, Grew. We will hear definitely if it turns out differently. But if all goes according to Hoyle and everybody's able to get their voters out, I think it's going to be pretty much uh, status quo in Wisconsin. That's how I see it. All right. When we come back in just a couple minutes, what is in a name? Stick around. 1250 HF Wagner, WTMJ. 
1067. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Melissa, when I say Folsom, California, I say Folsom. Is there something you think of? I think of Johnny Cash, Folsom Prison. You got it in one. Johnny Cash, <laughs> Folsom Prison yes. Blues. Yep. All right. All right. Well, I've got to give you another reason to think of Folsom, California. Folsom, California is actually... Um, it's a community in the Sacramento, California area, if you can kind of picture this for the ge- ge- geography. You know, Sacramento is kind of north-central California, and, and Folsom, Folsom, California is uh, an offshoot of the Sacramento area. All right, so here is, here is the deal. There is a state park in Folsom, California, that is known as the Negro Bar State Recreation Area. And it has been known as Negro Bar for, well, probably over 150 years. I mean, here, here is, here is the history of this. It, it turns out that it got its name because during the 1850s, the 1850s, you had a number of African-American miners who panned for gold there. And so it started being called Negro Bar. And then ultimately, this this area where they panned for gold was turned into a, a state recreational area. Um, matter of fact, when I, the way this way to describe it, Negro Bar was originally a large gravel bar on the south side of the American River named for the African American gold miners who discovered gold there during the California gold rush. Um, for a few years, it rewarded the prospectors with a steady yield of coarse gold dust. Now, and like I say, it has become a state park, and it's been a state park essentially forever. It's called either the Negro Bar State Recreation Area or the Negro Bar State Park. It draws kayakers, swimmers, uh, fisher people, picnickers year-round. It gets an extremely high rating on Yelp. It gets 4.5 out of 5 stars. The reviews are... Great venue for family of all sizes, clean water, clean trails, secured nicely, great restaurants, and an historic little town. Those are kind of the reviews that it gets. All right, so why why am I talking about Negro Bar State Recreation Area? A big story in the Washington Post today about how there's a woman um, who's you know driving you know through Folsom, California. She stops at a red light and she sees a, a sign on the other side of the street that says Negro Bar Recreation Area, and it's got a sign. And she says, I I immediately became uncomfortable. Being a a black woman, I immediately rolled up both my windows, looked in my rearview mirror, looked around to make sure I was safe because I wasn't sure what was going on. And then she goes back home, and she starts doing research, and she finds out the history. But she said, when I saw this sign, I, I became incredibly uncomfortable about it. Her reaction, then, is to start a petition. She has created one of these online petitions, which so far has more than 18,000 signatures, and she wants the California Department of Parks and Recreation to change the name of the Negro Bar State Recreation Area because she finds it uncomfortable and offensive. Now, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names does not consider the word Negro to be universally derogatory. For example, they say, hey, this term is still used by numerous African-American organizations, including the United Negro College Fund and the National Council of Negro Women. 
So they say, you know, we we don't consider this to to be a, a uniformly derogatory term. And this again, th- this is the history of this this location. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the um, Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The, the hit we know what the history of it is. This was an area where African American miners went to mine gold. It has been referred to this. It is a state park. It's been a state park for probably over a hundred years. <clears throat> this lady says she feels uncomfortable seeing the sign identifying it as Negro Bar Recreation Area or Negro Bar State Park, and she wants it changed. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Does she have a point, or is this, if not political correctness, run amok? Is this an overreaction? to a, a situation. Do, do we now need to say, all right, there are certain words that are unacceptable, and now, despite the fact that the word Negro was commonly used and doesn't, I don't, certainly doesn't have the, the derogatory connotation that the N-word itself has, all right, is it too close? Do we need to get rid of that word from our society as well? And do you start with, taking, uh, again, places that are named and use that word in part for their historical significance, do you need to get rid of that because this lady and presumably others feel uncomfortable, feel threatened because that is the name of the park? 414-799-1620. Should they rename the park? What do you think? We discuss in just a minute. And of course, I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. 113, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 116, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, it's probably going to take nine or ten wins for the Packers to get to the postseason. Looking at the remaining nine games on the schedule, where do the seven wins come from for the Pack? You can join the discussion tonight at 635 on Packers Playbook with Greg Matzik and Jeff Falconio. Yeah, given the way they're playing, good good luck finding those seven wins. All right, here's the story. There, There is a state park in California. Um, it is named the the Negro Bar State Recreation Area. Why they call it back that, it goes back to the, the 1850s when this was an area that was mined for gold and really developed by African-American miners. All right, so now you have this lady who's driving through the town that's adjacent to this park. She sees this sign. It says Negro Bar Recreational Area. She says, I, I became threatened. I, I felt unsafe, and I, I think it's appalling that you've got this name of this. Should they change it? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Sure. No, no, they should not change the name. Uh, if it has some uh, historical significance about about a period of time in history where we we, we African Americans were called Negroes, and, you know, you might as well change the uh, NAACP, the, the color people part, and the NAACP. Right. You know, you know, people have problems with that. So the fact is, no, this this is an historical area. Keep it the way it is, and and, and 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 it's a teachable moment. Instead of what she's, what is she afraid about? Right. You know, use it as a teachable moment, and 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 we just can't, you know, take a, a brush and just whitewash all of history. Well, you know, uh, you raise an interesting point. Uncomfortable. Because one of the things, I, it's interesting, Vincent. I was kind of looking into this, and apparently, you know, what one of the things that happened is some of the people with the park system 
Um, early on, they reached out to, for example, they, they reached out to the African-American community, and they went out and they talked to the Sacramento African-American Historic and Cultural Society, and they said, okay, what – what, what, what do you think? And, and they made the same point that, that you just made. They said, well, no, th- this is a culturally significant area, and it's there to recognize the important contribution that African Americans made in that region. And so that's why it's got the name that it has. That's right. And so just because the lady just drives by and she's uncomfortable, she needs to get over it. And so, no, it needs to stay the same, and, and hopefully this doesn't get bigger than it is. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. And again, that it it's it was interesting to me because, again, when, when they reached out to – and everybody, I guess, has got different opinions on this – but when you reach out to the historic preservations in the area, and they say, no, there, there's a reason why it is called this, and, and there is a reason why it has this name, and that is it is a reflection of of the people that developed that this particular area. And that, that's got, that's the cultural significance of it. And if people, you know, see this name and they wonder why is it called that, well then they, okay, they do the research and they say, okay, well this is, this is because, oh, this was this beautiful area that was developed by African American miners in the 1850s and it's a recognition of their contribution to the area. Let's talk to Barbara in Heartland. Barbara, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. What do you think? I think it should not be changed. This is a recognition of what they contributed to the gold rush. And, you know, we're, they're all out there crying that black people matter. This is a showing that they do matter, and it should not be changed. Right. If Now, they are that, I mean, no, thanks for calling. I, I guess this only goes so far. If instead of it being called the Negro Bar Recreational Area, it was... Okay, it's called the they, they use the N word to describe it. Okay, if that was the official name, would I be arguing that okay, well, it's got a historical context, so you can't change it all? No, I I I think you know you have to recognize that the times change. I guess I just don't believe, and I, I think you know most people don't believe at this point in time that that the word Negro in and of itself is so offensive that you have to, again, remove that word from society as well. Now, maybe we'll come to a point where, where that is, that's where we're going, but maybe, again, that, that starts with the United Negro College Fund or the United, the National Council of Negro Women. Um, maybe, maybe that starts with them changing the, the name, but I, I don't think we're there with regard to the use of the, the word Negro, especially Especially in this context, could you say, well, there, there's certainly contexts and things that you could use where that word would be offensive, and I would agree with you, but this doesn't appear to be one of them. Mary in Whitewater. Mary, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, hi, Jeff. Hi, Mary. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I, uh, well, I told the screener a couple of things, but after listening to these last few calls, um, I've changed my mind a little bit on it. Um, because I didn't know the historical significance. Right. I never even heard of the park. Right, me neither. <laughs> Wisconsin and, you know. Right, me neither. <laughs> but um, but I, I definitely see the point. And I, I think that, yeah, if this one person or maybe a handful of people are offended by it, you're, you're absolutely correct, excuse me, in the sense that the word Negro is not derogatory. And I'm sure there are people out there that think it is. But because of the historical significance um, of what I've just understood to you know what why it's even there no it should not be changed it is a contribution to society right you know this and i and i think it's great and i but unfortunately you know somebody's probably gonna fight so hard on this that it does end up being changed and at least i think if it does get changed it should be named after 
uh, an African American. Right, maybe maybe one of the miners or something. Yeah, maybe one of the miners. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, I guess I look and I you you wonder how many battles that you have to fight, but I guess what what I find what I find is interesting here is this is this name. The, the, the use of the word Negro uh, appears in a lot of this historical designations and namings. And, you know, we, we haven't, you know, we haven't said that this is blatant racism, or at least the government hasn't said that. And I think it's a very divided community on that. And I, I mean, that's fine. If, if the standard is going to be we need to remove that word from society, okay, I, I guess we can have that conversation. But until we do, again, I'm with one of the callers who said just because somebody becomes uncomfortable when they see this sign um, without understanding any sort of historical significance or why it's called that, that in and of itself doesn't seem to me to be a justification for changing something that does have historical and cultural impact and goes back, what, 170 years. 123, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The holidays are right around the corner, and WTMJ is back with our annual holiday radio show, WTMJ Presents the Night Before Christmas, starring Gene Miller, the incomparable Jane Matinere, yours truly, and a slayful of Wisconsin celebrities from Turner Hall in downtown Milwaukee on Monday, November 26th at 6.30. The live radio play will be recorded in front of a studio audience, and you can be a part of it. Buy tickets now or go to WTM to buy tickets now. Go to WTMJ.com or text the word Christmas to 414-799-1620. I would expect if, if it's not close to being sold out, I would expect it to be close to sold out or sold out in the very near future. What was NBC thinking? No, I, I understand what they were thinking. All right. Remember a couple of weeks ago in, in the height of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, you've got the, the last minute. Claims by first one woman and then a second woman and then a third woman that Brett Kavanaugh was essentially a gang rapist or had molested them and things like that. Well, the, the third woman was this woman named Julie Swetnick, and she was represented by sleazebag attorney Michael Avenetti and she uh, Avenatti, and she's the one that came forward and essentially implied that um, Kavanaugh had been involved in, in gang rapes at parties. It was completely and totally over the top. You know, but but this is it. She was the third woman that came forward. NBC ran an interview with her. They they put her on the air and in this taped interview it turns out that she she backtracked from her allegations. Eh, she wasn't as clear. It now is turning out that NBC News was aware before they even put this woman on the air, that there were other problems with her story. In late September, before before they ran the ad with her, apparently NBC had contacted a woman who supposedly had submitted a, a statement corroborating Swetnick's story. Well, it turns out that, you know, so NBC, they go out, they investigate this, and investigating it, they find out that this woman, who supposedly was going to corroborate this story, had essentially failed to corroborate anything. And she had, in fact, turned on the lawyer, this Avenetti guy. She said, I don't like that he twisted my words. Nevertheless, NBC ran the story and the interview with this Swetnick alleging gang rapes and stuff without telling anybody that they had essentially identified the, the woman who was supposedly the one that had the corroborating evidence and that she refused to back up the story at, at all and had walked away with it. NBC didn't tell anybody about that until, well, late last week. 
I've got a big story in the Washington Post, and this shows how bad it is for NBC. The Washington Post has really broken bad on NBC. Um, let's see. So this is what they, they say. So once more, what was NBC thinking? The conservative theory is that the network, by withholding important information, was trying to help Democrats derail Kavanaugh's nomination. Yeah, I think that's exactly what was going on. It also says there's a less malevolent explanation, which is simply that news organizations are leery of ever questioning the credibility of sexual assault accusations. And so they're like, okay, this woman is saying that she was, that Kavanaugh was party to a gang rape, even though we've got all this evidence that suggests that she's perhaps making this up or not being candid, or there's evidence that tends to disprove what she's saying. We're reluctant. We don't want to run this story because we don't want to get the, you know, hashtag me too movement mad, mad at us. So, we're going to allow this story to run, and we're going to smear the name of somebody who may very well be completely and totally innocent, or at least innocent of what these accusations are, and we're going to do it without, uh, again, providing the viewer, in this case, with all the information so that they could appropriately you know, judge this. The Washington Post story goes on to point out that um, you know, NBC wasn't the only media outlet that relaxed its normal standards during the Kavanaugh hearing. The New Yorker <clears throat> ended up doing the same thing. But the bottom line is, for people out there who thought thought that maybe there was sort of a conspiracy against Judge Kavanaugh or at least a relaxation of normal standards, well, turns out that the truth is you're, you're probably exactly right. It's 134, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ Summerfest is making a big announcement that could impact how you enjoy the big gig. John McCure is joined by CEO of the festival, Don Smiley, at 3.30. Tune in to Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right. In Madison, they call them EROs, Educational Resource Officers. What is an Educational Resource Officer? It's a cop, right? And for years and years and years, the four Madison area high schools have had a police officer, an educational resource officer, posted in the, the schools. That, that's been going on for years and years and years. They've had these EROs. And, and their purpose is, there, there's many purposes. There's a security function. There is an educational function. There is also sort of an acclimation function. I mean, you... You know, it's an opportunity for high school students to interact with with police officers and and maybe so that their only contact with a police officer isn't seeing something that's going on on TV or whatever, or maybe the interaction they have if they're in a car that runs through a red light and gets stopped. It's it's a chance to humanize the the police officers, but there's a security function. There's all these different things, and I don't think this is uncommon. Well, there's there's a group of agitators out in Madison, mostly from this so-called self-proclaimed social justice group called Freedom, Inc., and they don't want police officers in the Madison schools. All right? So the, the school board budget, the budget for next year, has to be finalized by today. Monday night, there was a, a school board, maybe it was late afternoon, there was a school board meeting on Monday, and th- this group, uh, tens of protesters, from the Madison-based social justice group, Freedom, Inc., showed up at the school board hearing. And essentially, after 90 minutes of testimony and disruption, they ended up shutting down the the school board meeting. 
because they were screaming, they were yelling, they were throwing a fit. I'm looking at this picture. Apparently, at one point in time, they unveil this giant banner says saying, no cops in school. And after about 90 minutes, it got so out of control that, that the board had to, to shut down the meeting. They apparently refused to stop chanting phrases, including, if we don't get it, shut it down. Um, at one point, they stood before the stage where the, bo- the board meets, unfurled, like I say, this banner saying, no cops in school. So you, you have this, this group of crazies that is so... I don't know. So out of control. And see, conservatives wouldn't do this. I'm sorry for people who for people who talk about the difference between like the liberal groups and the conservative groups. I, I conservative groups aren't going to a school board meeting and screaming and shutting the thing down. And they're just not going to do that. But in any event, this is what happens. It gets so out of control that the school board has to just say, "All right, we we can't go on," and they, they stop. Now they're, they're coming back today. And they're going to get the budget done because the budget has to be done by today. And what they're saying, the school board members are saying, look, they're talking to these members. We've been on this board for four or six or eight years, and and we've never had anything happen because of, you know, protesters and and this kind of out of control behavior. But they say, look, we're going to get this done. And. We're not going to, we're coming back today and we're going to get it done and we're not going to allow ourselves to be disrupted by this. But, you know, you had this, this coalition that felt so strongly about this that they were willing to behave like complete and total jack wagons in order to shut down the school board because they are so upset that Madison might actually place or continue to keep a police officer in every one of its high schools. All right, let's open up the phone lines, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I would think that most people, most rational, clear-thinking people, would embrace the concept of having a police officer in a high school for exactly the reasons I talked about a couple minutes ago. Number one, in the event that anything, Lord forbid, were to happen, You would have, you're not talking about teachers with guns, you're not talking about principals with guns, you're talking about a trained, sworn law enforcement official on the scene who might be, might be able to intervene and at least get early, early access to the scene and might be able to make a difference. Maybe not. If something bad were to happen, you have that. In addition, If you have security problems at the high school, if you have a fight that breaks out or whatever, again, you've got a law enforcement officer on the scene who might be able to break up the fight or stop the altercation or do something before it gets worse. In addition, you've got that police officer on the scene again to interact with with the kids, to interact with the students. So maybe. Maybe, you know, a student whose only contact with the police is, gee, I remember when we were pulled over and my older brother was smoking a joint and they treated him, I think they treated him wrong or whatever. You you get the chance to see the police officer in a different sort of context and maybe, maybe, just maybe, come away with a, a different understanding of what being a police officer is all about. But in any event... You've got this group of people out in Madison that's willing to shut down the school board meetings because they feel so strongly that there shouldn't be cops in schools. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't know about you, 
But I think the answer isn't less cops in school. Actually, I think the answer is more cops in school. But the idea of taking a police officer out of, that's been there forever, taking them out of the Madison High Schools, I think is absurd. 414-799-1620. Do police officers belong in schools as educational resource officers or whatever you want to call them? My answer would not just be yes, it would be heck yes. 414-799-1620. What do you think? We discuss next. 141, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 143, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, a, a protest group feels so strongly about this issue that they shut down the school board meeting in Madison on Monday. What is that issue? Well, Madison, for years and years, has had a, a police officer. They call them educational resource officers, but they're they're cops, sworn law enforcement officers in each one of the high schools. This group says they got to go, and the school board was getting ready to authorize the new budget, which would have kept the money in the budget to allow these cops to stay there. This group shut it down, and they are irate that Madison would continue to allow police officers in its public high schools. Stacy in Milwaukee. Stacy, you're on WTMJ. Yes, hi. Hi, Stacy. What do you think? I think that it's a great idea to have an officer in the school, um, in all schools. In fact, it'll make children feel safer. Um, um, I think it would alter bullying. They well, might feel safe. Yeah, I mean, I guess that that's it. If, if, if again, Lord forbid, there was ever somebody that got into one of these schools and you had an, an act of violence or whatever, wouldn't you feel better knowing that at least you had one of the first responders that was was on the scene? Now, now maybe that officer would be able to stop it. Maybe he'd be a victim. You know, who knows? But at least, at least you have somebody, a trained law enforcement officer, that's there who would be able to intervene. Who wouldn't want that? Right, I agree. Yeah, no, thanks for calling. Now, I see this is one. I understand. There's so many different things that are out there, and, and I understand reasonable people can disagree about issues. And I try to do my show with that in, in mind. This is not one that I see that particular way. Here's a text. With all the shooting going around the country, you would think that parents would welcome having a police officer in the school. Kevin says, rational and clear thinking is in very short supply in Madison. Why do you think we call it the People's Republic of Madison? Bill makes the point. So who are they going to call when their sons and daughters need first responders? Yeah. Now, you, you might say to me, well, Jeff, I don't I don't get this. Why Why don't they want, why doesn't this group want the police officers in, in the school? Well, going back to the public comment on this, again, this is members of this particular group. They believe that having a police officer inside the school, now I'm quoting from the Madison Papers now, can negatively affect students of color and feed into the school-to-prison pipeline. Well, okay, what, what feeds into the school-to-prison pipeline is kids that leave school, go out, commit crimes that then require them to be sent to jail or to prison. How a police officer in the school contributes to that is, frankly, beyond me. Here's one of what one of the activists says. Uh, this is Bianca Gomez, a member of Freedom Inc. Quote, ain't no amount of training, ain't no amount of special certificates is going to matter when it comes to black and brown kids because police officers see us as thugs and criminals. All right, it seems to me that the problem is not the police officers in the school. It seems to me 
instead that the problem is people like this woman who, again, views the police officers as the enemy. The police officers see us as thugs and criminals. Actually, I think this, quite candidly, I think this Bianca Gomez would do well to interact with probably some of the police officers that work as, again, the educational resource officers, because maybe my guess is you spend five or ten minutes with any of these people who are assigned into the school as police officers, and what you'll find is they don't view the students as thugs or criminals at all. I think it would be, you know, a positive thing in that regard. But but th- this is the problem. This is the mindset that, that some people have. And then because they've got their own little warped version of reality that's out there, they decide to carry that over. And again, now, look, I, do you have police officers that are bad cops? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, for that person, if you have somebody that's in that position and, and is behaving and treating I don't know, the high school kids with disrespect or whatever. Well, they they need to be out. There's no question about it. But this idea that, oh, well, this is the way all police officers are going to treat us and and it's going to contribute to the school-to-jail pipeline. No. I mean, it it humanizes police officers. So maybe maybe if a police officer on the street has an interaction with a kid, the kid decides, all right, I'm going to do what the officer says. I'm not going to run away or whatever. I'm, I'm just saying... I don't see this as a, I don't see how anybody loses in this. Anne in Waukesha. Anne, you're on WTMJ. Yes, uh, I just want you to know that we have had police officers in our high schools for quite a while, and it's been very positive and accepted by the community, by the students, by the teachers, and it does work. It's not intrusive in any way. Well, well, right, and it... And, and it, it allows the students, whether they're white or black or brown or green or blue, right. it gives them an opportunity to interact with the police officer and see that officer as a person instead of, I, I don't know, something else. It, it humanizes it. It encourages a, a mutual reaction, maybe a mutual respect. How can that be bad? It's not bad. And the interaction between the students and the police officer is very, very positive. He's not there as a disciplinarian, but he's there, and it's positive, and it's working. So the more schools that have it, the safer the schools will be. Yeah, no, thanks to call. No, I, I agree with you completely. To me, again, I, I understand that reasonable people can disagree on certain issues. This one is, that isn't close. It's, it's just some schools don't do it because they, they don't have the money to, to underwrite the program. All right, and, and I get it if it's a financial sort of thing. But these protesters out in Madison, it's it's not it's not a money issue. It's a we don't want those cops in our schools because police officers view these students as thugs or criminals or whatever. And you want to talk about you want to talk about stereotyping of the worst way. That's what this is. And I, I think the Madison School Board, even in Madison, I think they're going to say enough is enough and they're not going to let themselves be shut down again. I certainly hope so. It's 150. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back, for the love of goodness, President Trump is picking a fight with Paul Ryan a week before the primary, the week before the midterm elections. I'll tell you what that's all about in just a moment. Stick around. 151, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 153, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Years and years ago, when I was practicing law, there was a lawyer who would represent criminal defendants, and he was one of these guys who, he was always wrong. Even when he was right about something, he managed to twist it and end up being wrong. 
And I feel in some respects the same way about President Trump. And here's here's the latest story. All right, and we, we discussed yesterday that this whole question of birthright citizenship. Um, long story short, birthright citizenship, it means that if you are born in this country, you are a citizen of this country. And it doesn't matter whether or not your parents are in the country legally or not. You know, we had a caller yesterday that said that, hey, he was, you know, visiting somewhere overseas. They'd, they'd find these newspapers where in China they would advertise. I mean, these travel agents would advertise. They would solicit, for example, hey, are you pregnant? Are you ready to give birth? Well, come to the United States. You give birth in the United States, your kid is going to be a citizen. It, it has nothing to do, again, with the nationality of of the parents. And birthright citizenship uh, it, it is not it is not unique to the United States, but it's not something that you find in, in most countries. Um, most countries, you need, if you're born in the country, to be a citizen of the country, you need to have at least one of the parents who is a citizen or, you know, who's residing there legally for a period of years or, or whatever. But that's not how it is in the United States. You come into this country illegally, you have a baby, that child is is a citizen. Um, it gives rise to the term anchor baby that some people find find offensive, but it means the baby is the anchor that, that keeps the illegal couple, the couple who's in the country illegally, they stay because it's tough to deport them because the kid is the baby is a citizen. All right, that's that's the history of this. Um, President Trump yesterday apparently said that he thinks that we should end birthright citizenship. And by the way, I, I don't disagree with that. I as a policy matter, it makes no sense to me that the, the place where you were born, physically, that is controls what your citizenship is. It, it, it just, that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it would seem to me it should be, you know, mom or dad, you know, where are they citizens? Um, as opposed to, gee, by happenstance, your parents are on vacation in this country or they're here illegally. Why should you be a citizen just because by virtue of where you're born? So I, I agree with this whole questioning of the birthright citizenship thing. But let's put that aside for a minute. President Trump says he thinks he can get rid of birthright citizenship by just an executive order. I I think he's dead wrong on that, and I said this yesterday. Birthright citizenship is based on the 14th Amendment. It was adopted after the Civil War, and the purpose of the 14th Amendment was to address the rights of free slaves. It was meant to say... All right, if you if you were born as a slave, you are a citizen. That's what it was intended to do. Um, the language of the 14th Amendment is real clear. It says all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. I mean, it, it's very clear. Now, it wasn't intended to address a situation where you have people who are illegally in this country and, and they give birth to the child. That it wasn't the purpose. It was intended to address the status of freed slaves. But but nevertheless, the language says what the language says. So I, even though I get the problems with birthright citizenship, it, it's in the Constitution, which means the way you change that is by changing the Constitution or perhaps perhaps you could have legislation which – which clarifies the Constitution or something like that. But it, and the easiest way to do it would be to 
again, change the Constitution. So Paul Ryan, who is retiring, um, Paul Ryan, you know, somebody asks him the question, and he says, oh, I, you can't do it by executive order. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it would need a legislative change or perhaps a constitutional change. And one of the things we railed about was when President Obama was floating around trying to, you know, override the Constitution or override the legislature with these executive orders. You know, we, we oppose that and that you can't do it by executive order, to which President Trump has decided to respond. Paul Ryan, this is his tweet, should be focusing on holding the majority rather than giving his opinions on birthright citizenship, something he knows nothing about, exclamation point. Our new Republican majority will work on this, closing the immigration loopholes and securing our border. Paul Ryan should not ask questions, answer questions about this. He knows nothing about it. Sometimes you just don't know what to say. I mean, it's I, I, Donald Trump, and I, I understand. I always have to separate the policy from the personal and stuff. But it's it's this practice and this strategy of when you're wrong, be strong. Paul Ryan knows nothing about this. Well, maybe the president should read the Fourteenth Amendment because if you read the Fourteenth Amendment, Amendment, it's pretty clear. What has to happen? And so, again, we have a situation where, in my opinion, the president is right, perhaps, on the underlying issue of birthright citizenship, but still, he's a hash of it. And he takes on Paul Ryan a week before the midterm elections. Hmm. 159, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two oh seven, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Melissa, I have a story. It's it's kind of a confession that sometimes I, I'm not as good a person as I, I like to think that I, I, I maybe should be. Well, I think a lot of people are like that. All right. Well, here here's the deal. Whitey Bulger, you know who mm-hmm. Whitey Bulger yeah. was? Okay. Wh- Whitey Bulger, who was immortalized in, in various movies, um, The Departed with Matt Damon, and uh, that was... And Jack Nicholson, that was one. The Jack Nicholson character was played like a version of this of Whitey Bulger. That, right. That's what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, Whitey Bulger was, I, I think, arguably one of the most notorious gangsters of the 20th century. He ran what was called the Winter Hill Mob out of Boston, um, which was responsible for all matter of bad things, including multiple murders uh, of, of people o- over the years. What Bulger was able to do, too, and, and this is, he he was an FBI informant as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and what was unclear is who was actually informing on, on who, because, you know, what what he would apparently do is he would, um, he, he would, he would turn over member, his criminal competition, you know, other, other, other gangsters and stuff, he would inform on, on them to the FBI and the FBI would go out and arrest him and then in exchange he got essentially immunity um and he's going out and he's committing all these murders and the FBI agents are looking the other way it was a disgraceful time for the FBI and and this this was a really really horrible person Whitey Bulger mm-hmm. and then what happened is when they finally caught on to what was was going on As a matter of fact somebody in the FBI actually tipped him off that they knew what had happened and that he was going to get indicted. Then he split and he was on the road. He was on he the was lam for 16 years. Yeah, I was going to say decades, but Six, yeah. 16, 16 years. years. And then ultimately they catch him um, in in Santa Monica, California, where he was living with his girlfriend. Yeah, I remember that. Right. They find he's sitting mm-hmm. on, he's got $800,000 in cash and an arsenal of firearms. Right. But this is a guy who was responsible for 
countless crimes, countless murders, had played had played the FBI in Boston like a fiddle, and, and then then had ran. And so he he gets caught and he gets convicted in 2013 of 13 murder of 11 murders in the 70s and 80s. Um, Collecting millions of dollars in gambling and extortion and drug traffic was, and things uh, like that. Living yeah. on the East Coast when that happened, when they caught him. So it was like the biggest news story out there in Boston. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Okay, so why does this make me a bad person, you're wondering? Well, yeah. All right, so so here's the deal. He, he's in federal prison. And yesterday, now he'd been transferred to a couple different federal prisons. Uh, yesterday, he's at this, he's in this maximum security prison in Hazleton, which is in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And he's killed. He's beaten to death. And and the, it appears that he was killed by other inmates. This was he's eighty nine years old. This was not a natural cause death. This was, and and the, I think the theory he was just he was beaten to death. Um, and the theory is that there were mafia operatives that were in the the maximum security prison who who killed him because he informed, you know, he turned over all these mafia operators to the FBI mm-hmm. and they got prosecuted. So he's beaten to death. So, so you're he was killed. So how are you feeling? I'm not sorry at all. Yeah. <laughs> which, you think which, he finally got his due. Well, right. Exactly. It, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like justice. I, I firmly believe that the universe has a way of evening things out. And I guess I, I if I, I understand as a caring, compassionate person, I should be appalled that this man, you know, lost his life at this point in time and and he was the victim of this, this terrible crime and all and we don't send people to prison for punishment we send them to people people to prison for as punishment but you know what i'm not going to lose any sleep over no. the fact that this murdering whatever was murdered in prison and an 89 year old in prison probably is an easier target i would think right i mean he might be an easy target could be but Who doesn't knows, matter right? yeah. that, that just, just doesn't bother me at all how about you grew you sorry for the whitey bulger got murdered in prison Hardly knew. Hardly him. Yeah, knew I mean, it, it's it's like okay, you know, it, it's kind of like Charles Mann. And again, it's I, 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 you should feel compassion for this. I, I I understand because he was a crime victim himself at the end. But I, I just think about this reign of terror that this guy ran mm-hmm. for decades and how he scammed the law enforcement system and all. And and the fact that he dies in prison. Not going to lose any sleep over that. Okay, you don't think that makes me too bad? A no, I don't think okay. so. No. All right, but I, that that's that is that is my confession. All right, let us switch gears. Um, if I, if you are a regular listener to this program, you, you might occasionally there will be a phone call that comes in and we'll be talking about, let's say, let's say we're, we're talking about how you handle sexual assault cases, something like that. And somebody will call in and they'll say, I was sexually assaulted when I was 17 years old. And I want to tell you about it, and and I will always stop them, and I will say, I I, I can't let you use any names, no, no names. You'll, you'll hear me do that. Well, th- there's a number of reasons why I do it. One is that the law is very very clear. I I, th- I think it's clear that I, th- this is a public radio station. I can't allow. I can't come on the radio and I can't defame somebody. I can't say I have evidence that believes that. John Doe killed so-and-so, and if I accuse them of doing that, and it turns out that I'm wrong, well, they can sue me, and they can sue the radio station, more importantly. Um, you, you can't do that. And similarly, the law is such that I can't allow a call. If I can't do it, 
I can't come on and, and defame somebody. I can't allow a caller to do it. All right. So you're always very careful. And that's why if you ever hear me say, okay, no names, please. It's because I, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether what they're saying is accurate or not. I don't know if the person's ever been charged. Don't know if you can prove it or not. And I don't want to go down that route. And I don't want to have to hit the dump button and knock them off. That's why we, we do that. Because I have liability if I, I let somebody come on and do something like that. Well, there's a, it's different on the internet. And the way, oops, 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 oops. My computer just locked up and I just punched the wrong number in. All right. The, the, Going back to 1996, there, there is a law that says if you essentially, I'm going to make it simple. If you run a website, you are not responsible for the things that people put on your website. And, and that's kind of an oversimplification of it. But the thinking is, well, you know, there, there's so many people that, that post things. It wouldn't be practical to, you know, have, it wouldn't be reasonable to expect the person that runs the website to know everything that's being put up there. So the way this has, is similarly like, you don't say, all right, you, you've got a library, we've got five million books that are in it. You know, we're not going to allow you, if there's something in one of those books that somebody might find defamatory, we're not going to allow you to sue the, the, the library. That's the thinking behind it. So what's happened is the, these various social media websites, have kind of taken this, all right, well, you know, it, we're not responsible for anything that gets posted on our websites. So if we want to run a, a website that caters to the hate left or the hate right or the neo-Nazis or the anti-Semites or whatever, it's all free speech. Here, come on in. Use our use our websites and sit around and, and talk about wanting to kill people or wanting to do this or how you hate that person or hate that person. And and it's protected. And so, for example, if you have somebody who you know, goes on a website and they're exchanging commentary and it's getting progressively more agitated and agitated and they're encouraging violence against this group of person or that group of person, people, and then they actually act out on it, the the, the website itself well, they say, hey, we're not responsible. We're protected from this. You know, we you can't expect us to rein this in. Now, th- this whole concept is back in the news because if whether it was the guy with the pipe bombs last week or the anti-Semitic terrorist on, on Saturday, if you look at the websites that some of these guys were frequenting, you see the hate stuff that they were spewing out there. I mean, and it's it's not a secret that, you know, what their attitudes were and how they felt against certain people or against certain groups. And again, this is these are two of the examples in the last week, but you can find all sorts of examples. So one of the questions is, is it time to start saying, all right, maybe these websites bear some responsibility or should bear some responsibility for the people that are going to go on them and are going to spew their hate if something bad ultimately happens, just like if it's a radio or a TV station or a newspaper and you print or air something that's defamatory, you can, in fact, be responsible. All right. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Should websites that foster or that, again, allow and provide the voice and the room 
for the, the, this type of hate speech that, that goes on. Again, I don't care if it's the right-wing hate speech or left-wing hate speech or whatever. Should they be protected? Should they be immune? Or if somebody that's using these websites to spew their particular type of hatred then ultimately goes out and, and acts out, and maybe because they're emboldened by some of the other stuff that people say to them on the website, does the website have some responsibility? 414-799-1620. We discuss in a moment. 218 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 221 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The, the reason a lot of these websites are out there and they're allowed to serve as, as a forum for a lot of the hate speech and a lot of the really whacked out stuff that goes on is because under the law, the websites are immune from, from liability. You, you can't sue the website. Somebody can go on the website and write and talk about how they hate this type of person or that type of person and how they think all these people should be dead. And then if somebody reading that or that person goes ahead and acts out on it, you, you, can't, you can't go after the website. Uh, and because of the, these laws, I'm wondering, and a lot of congressmen and a lot of senators are wondering, is it time to re-examine that? And should the websites be liable if, again, kooks are posting this type of stuff on there and then they, in fact, act out? Let's start with Sue in Kenosha. Sue, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Well, I feel like, you know, we're the greatest country in the world. We have the greatest technology. And what we're uh, dealing with here are a lot of hate speech on these websites. And um, I just feel like if they could be held accountable, some very great tragedies may be prevented. Well, it's it's possible. I mean, again, I... The, the problem is with with the internet is it's become it's the dark side of the internet and it's become th- this haven for uh, again disaffected people on the left on the right just troubled people who you know before maybe they'd sit in mom's basement and they'd mumble these things but now they they have these sources to go out and, and to talk to people and to channel this stuff and I guess w- without any limitations on it a- at all. You're seeing some of the consequences. I hate to use the cliche, but the chickens are coming home to roost. Exactly. Um, and I feel like if some of the websites were held accountable, um, I I really just feel that maybe some tragedies could be prevented. Well, right. Th- thanks, because what would happen is, no, thanks to call, because then what would happen is if there was if there was a fear of liability, what would happen is the, the websites themselves would have to do a better job of policing themselves. If you had some nutcase who, let, let's, let's take the example of the, the tragedy that happened over the weekend. If you had some nutcase that was on your website and was talking about how they hated all Jewish people and they thought all Jewish people should, should die, et cetera, et cetera, and going on these rants, if you had a website that would be, you know, liable if something in fact happened and that person acted out, well, I guarantee you that website would be doing something about it. They would either say, okay, we're not going to allow you to post anymore, or they would single it out and notify law enforcement, hey, by the way, you, you should know what's going on here. We have this person in wherever who's posting these different things. If they had some legal responsibility then I think they would have to behave in a more responsible fashion. And and look, I 
I understand that you've got First Amendment issues. Believe me, I mean, you're talking to somebody, as I always say, who makes his living under the umbrella of the First Amendment. And I, I understand it. That the problem is, you know, you, you can't stop people from, you know, talking and saying crazy things. That That's not necessarily a crime. But at the same time, it could be the basis for some civil liability or something like that. Don't we want the websites to have to at least... I don't know, be somewhat of a gatekeeper for what goes on there, just like newspapers are, or TV stations are, or radio stations are. Don't, shouldn't there be certain standards? Okay, uh, Jeff in Random Lake. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hi, I, uh, I disagree. I would have to say that the websites are absolutely not liable. Um, it's taking away from personal responsibility for actions, which is kind of the way this country's been going, and I think that's a big part of the problem. But trying to hold the websites accountable for what people say and then do after that is like trying to hold a high school responsible for a school shooter. No, I guess I don't. I I guess I I disagree with that. I mean, if 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 you or I were running a website and there's a guy that's on there and is posting stuff that that clearly, you know, we you understand it's a threat or you understand it's this hate speech and it's not too tough to figure out that this person is ready to act out. Is there anything wrong with saying, hey, the website has some responsibility to notify somebody or to shut the guy down? I mean, can, do we really want to condone the website just to- turning a blind eye to it? No, the website is more than entitled to shut somebody down. That's their right. It's their right. website. They're allowed. However, going after them for liability, it's just it's impractical. Well, what about all the people that say all that stuff and then never do anything? Where do you draw the line? Well, that that that's what the I mean. No, thanks for that. And that, that's of course what what the issue is because there's a lot of these nutcases that are out there that just talk about it. I, I guess my my problem with the way it is now, it, it's just completely and totally the wild west because there is immunity. The, the websites, especially some of the fringe websites, there's they have no incentive at all to try to rein in some of the crazies or to notify authorities that there might be these crazies out there that you at least maybe you want to look at. And, and look, at I because here, here's the problem. You ever see the movie? Do you ever see the pro- movie Minority Report? It's a, it's with uh, Tom Cruise, and it, it's set in the future, and, and what they do is they have this technology. The movie is about they have this technology that allows them to identify criminals before the crimes are committed. And so they go out and they stop the crime before it's committed. But the problem is sometimes they get it wrong. And it's kind of an interesting movie in in that regard. You don't want to see this country become like Minority Report. But at the same time, I I, I don't think you want to just allow it to be a complete and total free-for-all. I don't think the First Amendment is absolute. 227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Anytime, on TV, on Facebook, on your phone, no matter where you are. Today's TMJ4 is right there with you. Life moves fast, and so does the Today's TMJ4 news team, Milwaukee's news team. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A heartbreaking loss to the Rams, two major trades, a lot has changed since we last checked in with the Packers head coach, Mike McCarthy. He's live at 621 tomorrow on Wisconsin's Morning News with Gene Miller. Yeah, Ty Montgomery essentially traded for a bag of footballs, and that's that's kind of addition by subtraction. Um, haha, Clinton Dix, he wasn't going to be a part of the team next year, and he had trouble tackling, so they got rid of him. 
fourth round draft pick. They got something, but it's hard to argue that the Packers are any better. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Well, I, I, I managed to make it through. Ruth's producing the show today. This is a, I, matter of fact, at the beginning of the show, somebody sent a text that I read. It said, Jeff, are you going to discuss the impending sale of WTMJ to Good Karma and what side effects will have on programming and just the overall state of WTMJ? And my answer is yes. And I'm going to do a little bit of that now. We'll do more of it uh, tomorrow. As I say, we're tentatively made arrangements to have the the CEO, the new owner of WTMJ, um, on the program tomorrow. We'll try to work that out as to what exactly the time is. I'd like to do it during the 12 o'clock hour, but we, we will see. But this is, for, for people who haven't been following the story, and I've been getting these phone calls, and my wife has been getting these phone calls going, is, is TMJ going away, and is the brand being flipped or whatever? Um, and I keep saying, well, well no. I mean, I, I think... Let's review the bidding quickly. When when I first started here, it was journal communications. And and journal communications, you had the newspaper, you know, the the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and then you had journal broadcast group, which consisted of a bunch of TV stations scattered out across the country and a bunch of radio stations, about 36, 38 radio stations, whatever it was, scattered across the country, um, with, with WTMJ probably being the, the flagship of, of, of the brand. What We were a privately held company. After I worked here for about four or five years, for a variety of reasons, they, they took the company public. They sold stock in it. And so the, the, the character of the company changed a little bit, being, being a public company. And, and it went on that way for a number of years. About three and a half years ago, they, they made the decision to split and to sell the company. So the Journal Sentinel, the newspaper division, that was that was split off, and it ended up now it's owned by Gannett, the people who own USA Today. It severed any sort of corporate identity we in broadcast had. In the broadcast side, again, the TV stations and the radio stations, we were purchased by Scripps Media Incorporated. Scripps is a TV, they own TV stations all across the country, and they're based out of Cincinnati. Well, they acquired us, they took all the TV stations, and they they took us, uh, the the radio division as well. Now, Scripps wasn't in radio, they had been in radio like 10 or 12 years ago and gotten out of it, so we were kind of... Again, this, this sort of stepchild that was, that was at the kids table for these things. But, but Scripps is a great company to work for. I, I, I have enjoyed the time at, at Scripps. I have absolutely nothing bad to say. Great benefits and things. But what Scripps decided to do is they decided they were going to divest themselves of the radio operation. And so for the last, gosh, year plus, my, my boss, Steve Wexler, who's been in charge of the entire radio group, he's been negotiating sales of, of different radio stations. And, um, that, that's, that's now pretty much done now. And the Milwaukee radio stations, WKTI and WTMJ, were sold to Good Karma Brands, which is kind of interesting because in, in radio, it's either small or it's really, really big. And a lot of the conventional wisdom was going to be that we were going to get sold to a, a small, uh, to a really big purchaser. Um, th- that didn't work out. And candidly, I think that's best for everybody involved. Two of the really big companies, they're, they're, they're coming out of bankruptcy. The third one just made all these acquisitions. I, I think we're much better going to a, a small company as it turns out. And that deal goes through tomorrow. Good Karma Brands, um, which is a privately held company that owns a handful of ESPN stations across the country, including um, an ESPN station in Milwaukee, kind of down the dial. They're gonna, they're gonna, they own WTMJ and WKTI. It's already been announced that today is is actually, and it's a bittersweet day. It's the last day for WKTI because what they're going to do is 
that's going to become an all-sports station. Temporarily, it's going to be a simulcast of the other Good Karma ESPN station 40, but ultimately they're, they're going to, they're going to build an, an entire sports station, um, with, you know, live personalities and stuff. It's, it's a very exciting sort of thing, even though it's bittersweet because the, the country, the station and, you know, the WKTI as we know it as a music station is going away and some of our colleagues, um, they're, they're leaving. Matter of fact, one of our, one of our guys just was, was saying goodbye. So you've got that dynamic that is going on. WK, for WTMJ, uh, the, the ownership changes tomorrow. I don't expect that there's going to be any major things that are going on, at least in, in the short term. You know, we'll, we'll talk more with the, the CEO about that, but I, I don't think there's going to be any of those changes. But one of the things, and this is why it's a bittersweet day, um, going on behind the scenes is some of our management people have, are, are moving on. Um, my dear friend and our general manager, Tom Langmeyer, who's been with us for a, a number of years, and Tom, has forgotten more stuff about radio than most of us will ever know. Um, Tom is is leaving to pursue other opportunities. He's got some really exciting things, but Tom has been a friend and a supporter and a fan. Today is his last day at WTMJ. Had a chance to talk to him a little bit this morning. Our program director, Eric Brooks, who, if you are a regular listener of my program, he he started out years ago as, as my producer. He was Crowbar. He was Crowbar and um, worked his way up, has now been the program. And, and Eric, I think I've always seen him as a rising star in the industry. I keep saying that he's going to be firing me someday somewhere. But Eric is leaving as program director. He's going to uh, San Francisco to work at the uh, top news station in San Francisco. But today is his last day. And, and it's it's a very bittersweet day. So I I said yesterday I wanted to do... And I have effectively done it. My, my little, my little tribute and my thank you to my former producer, now my program director, Eric Brooks. Because over the years, there are many things that I do, I think I do well, but occasionally there's some stuff that I, I just, there, there's little details that I don't sweat as much as I perhaps should. The bottom of the hour news is supposed to start at 1230 or 130 or 2.30. And I admit, Occasionally, I'm 30 seconds late, or I'm a minute late, or whatever, and the program director, Eric, will come in, and he'll look at me, and he'll say, what do I have to do? <laughs> well, tell me, what can I do to get you to hit the, the news at the bottom of the hour? And I'll say, I will try to be better. And then I inevitably, I, I inevitably just, I, I screw it up, I forget about it. But today, 12.30, 1.30, as my tribute and my, my goodbye present to my program director and my friend, Eric Brooks, I hit it exactly. I was trying to think, what could I give him that he doesn't already have? I can give him that I'm, I, I can give him the gift that I can show him that I can do it when I ultimately have to. But again, it's kind of a bittersweet day here at WTMJ. A number of us are very, very excited about, you know, what the future is going to be. I think it's going to be extremely exciting. Looking forward to a number of the good karma people, our teammates relocating here. That starts tomorrow. It's really kind of a new day for, for WTMJ. We're very excited here at Radio City and, and looking forward to the future. But I just did want to take a minute and again say thanks to, you know, so many people, including my, my dear friends, Tom Langmeyer, people behind the scenes whose names you don't always hear, but um, Tom Langmeyer and Eric Brooks, who've uh, been my friends and been my supporters, um, including through some relatively you know tough times I've had over the last few years, and who always had my back. And I certainly appreciate that, and I appreciate the support, and I will miss them. And now we move forward. It's 242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 245, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'm going to text her, Jeff, are all the changes behind the scenes, or will there be anything that the listening public will hear? 
I don't know. <laughs> I just, I, I'm not. I'm not that guy to ask. You know, I'm. I'm not that guy to ask. I'm just the guy that I. I, I fully expect to be here, continuing to do the show noon to three, and I don't think that there's going to be major changes in WT. But I'm not the guy to ask. Um, hopefully tomorrow we we will talk to the CEO, um, uh, my new boss, and we'll, we'll ask a couple of those questions. All right, I want to switch gears. I um, I was. I have a number of younger children in my life nowadays, and I was one of those. One of those children is trying to learn how to play chess. Right? I am by no means a great chess player, but I'm okay. So I'm trying to teach them how to play chess and how the different pieces move and what the strategy of the game is and all. And so one of the ways you do that is you do it by by playing them. So here is, here is the question. You're playing, in, in my case, and it can be anything. It could be board games. In my case, it was chess. You're, you're playing the game with an 11-year-old, and you, you want them to learn. You want them to enjoy the game. You don't want them to get frustrated. But, but here's the question. Do you let the child, and I talk about let the child, beat you at the game? Now, if we get over to video games, this 11-year-old can just whip my butt, all right? That, that's, I, don't, I don't even try that anymore. But you're, you're trying to teach somebody, and I, and I don't care what the game is, whether it's chess or checkers or you're playing Candyland or shoots and ladders or, or whatever, and you're trying to teach the, the child how to play the game. My question is, do you let them win, or do you play to win yourself and try to teach them, understanding that people like to win, and if they constantly start to lose, maybe they're going to get frustrated. 414-799-1620, that was the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I bring this up because I, I was doing this with one of the 11-year-olds in my life, and somebody said to me, well, are you going to let them win? And I said, well, no, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I, I, the reason I'm not letting them win is because I, 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 want to, I want them to get better. I want to kind of teach them how these things work. Now, when I win, I'm not jumping up and down. And go, oh, I, I beat you because you beat an 11 year old. But, but I am kind of trying to use it as a teachable moment. You know, you move there. Okay. Once you move there, see what I did. And, and that's why you ended up losing. All right. Do you let kids win? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And again, I, I am assuming for the sake of argument, that you, you, you are at the point where you can let them win because, like I say, if I end up playing video games, I am lost. All right, let's see a texter while Gru's lining up the calls. I don't let them win. Maybe if we played a few games, I might let them win one out of four or five, but kids nowadays really need how to learn how to lose. All right, 414-799-1620. Do you let the kids win? And again, you, you can pick what the games are. I'm talking about playing chess with an 11-year-old, but, you know, it can be... Shoots and ladders with an eight-year-old. Lynn and Adele. Lynn, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Lynn. Do you when let I them win? Play, when I play with my grandchildren up to age five, I let them win. But after age five, they need to learn how to lose. Otherwise, how can they ever, in real life, face loss? Mm-hmm. They have to learn it. Right. And so when, when you... I mean, do then you do you try to use it as a teachable moment? Like, okay, this is this is this is why you lost, or this is what you should have done, or something like that to to try to make them get a little bit better. Yes, you have to. You have to help them grow into being that kind of a person that can accept a loss. Okay, so I'm not a terrible person if I if I if I win when I'm playing chess with the 11 year old. Heck, 
11-year-olds, I don't let them win at anything. <laughs> well, right. No, thanks for calling. And, and see, inevitably, what's going to happen is that the, the kid is going to pass me up. I, I understand because I'm at the top of my chess proficiency. I, I understand that. And if if the if the child enjoys the game and gets motivated, I'm just trying to picture when he first legitimately beats me, um, I just just think of how satisfying that is going to be if if I allowed them. I mean, if I allowed him to win in the beginning, I I don't know. I, I just think it would take away some of that fun. Dave in Belgium. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yes, thank you for taking my. This, this really hits the chord with me because I raised three sons and we all love the golf. And I got them. They started golfing at even six, seven years old. To start with, you gotta let them. Uh, I let I let them win. I, I mean, I I could hit the ball far better than them, but right. I mean, I, I would mulligan it or I would purposely do something and then let them hit it. And if they didn't hit it but a few yards, I'd say, hey, that was. Don't worry about it. Right. I try to make it fun for them. And now, now they're out to kill me. But I mean, we're out there. <laughs> now, now they're all. <laughs> They're all professionals, but I mean, it's all serious. But right. when they're starting out, let them win, make it fun, and and then they'll they'll catch on. If they have a real interest in it, they'll be very good at it. Well, right, and also my guess is, after a certain point in time, they understand when you're th- where you're throwing when you're when you're throwing the game, and they they probably almost become insulted by that when it's when if if, if it's clear that you're throwing the game. Well, we have so much fun with this now that they're older, and now I've got two granddaughters. But we may, I always tried to make it fun for them. I said, don't take it seriously because I've seen a lot of dads out there right. and they're hollering at their kids. Just, and, and I always took the, if we hit it in the woods, eh, we'll just drop one, you know. <laughs> don't worry right. about it. Right, exactly. Yeah, we're, we're, thanks to go, right? We're, we're not playing for money. 414-799-1620. Chris in Waukesha. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. Um, I actually, I don't necessarily let them win, but I teach them how to win. They can't win all the time because Sometimes the best lesson in life is learn through a loss, and then you learn what you did wrong, and right. you become a better player. Well, well, right. Yeah, if, if you let somebody win all the time, and they're making bad moves or whatever, they're, they're never going to progress. They're, they're, it's going to be, okay, I, I've got this game down. They're never going to understand what they got to do to get better at whatever the game is. Oh, absolutely. If I like your previous caller with the golf thing, you, you can you know, kind of offset a shot once in a while to show them that you know, not everybody's perfect at this. Right, but, you know, you'll, you'll get better as you go along. But he was a really good, good yeah, caller. About interesting. It. Thanks to call, Chris. Okay, here's some of our texts. Played chess with my grandfather all the time. He never let me win, and insisted if I took my finger off the piece, I couldn't change my mind. Okay, I'm not. I'm not that tough. Um, okay. Heather says, I started playing tic-tac-toe with my eight-year-old when we go out to eat. At first, when he was younger, I would let him win 50% of the time. Now I don't let him win at all, and I am beaten by him more than I wish to admit. Well, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of it. Um, okay, Jeff, I'm an assistant martial arts instructor for all intents and purposes, human chess, and I teach kids ages eight to 16. When I spar with them, I spar at a level competitive without totally laying down for them. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, right, I understand that, especially in a, in, in a physical sort of setting. You know, a 30 year old guy, you know, going up against an eight year old, right, you're, you're not gonna, you, you know, you're, you're, you're just so physically superior. I, I'm sure that might be a little bit of, uh, might be a little different though when you're talking about, again, the, um, uh, you know, the board games. And I guess, and, and my purpose isn't to, 
And again, I think there's ways you can do it. You, you don't, you know, you're not going to gloat, ha ha ha, I beat you. But I try to do it again with the educational thing. See, you move that piece, and that let me come in and, and do this. Or you keep making the, you're making the same mistake. You know, you're you're not patient enough. And you know, my goal is to try to do it where it's still fun, and you like playing with me, and he, and, and he likes and enjoys playing with me and stuff like that. And maybe gets motivated to beat me, but doesn't get so you know turned off but i i mean quite candidly also i think by a certain age kids know when you're you're throwing things and uh, by it's throwing the game and well you know uncle jeff or you know jeff you you can't make that 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 move you know why did you make that move and they they know that you're kind of like opening them up to do stuff and i think then then the, the win isn't as sweet no doubt in my mind that uh people i'm teaching to play chess will probably sooner than i want uh, be better than me it's 254 when we come back we're going to find out what john mccure has on his mind on wisconsin's afternoon news please stick around